What does world history, the cross, and a hit new Disney movie have in common? Well, my hope today is that our walk through Leviticus will help us answer that question. Today we are looking at scapegoat views or windows of atonement. On the annual feast day of Yom Kippur, that is the day of atonement, once a year, the high priest through a number of sacrifices, some count as many as 15 sacrifices or more, would be made to purify the community for atonement and for confession of the community of their sins. Among the most interesting of rituals of Yom Kippur was the ritual of the two goats. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were brought to the high priest. These goats were identical in size and appearance and they were to be indistinguishable from each other. Now, once the high priest inspected the goats for their purity and likeness, because they were to be without blemish, lots were cast to determine the fate of each goat. For the goat on whom the lot fell to the Lord, that goat was offered as a sacrifice. The goat offered to the Lord was slaughtered there, some of the blood taken inside the tabernacle, to the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the tabernacle, and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat and in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the fate of the first goat offered to the Lord. But then there's this second goat whose lot fell to Azazel. And it was placed before the altar of burnt offerings. And for this goat, it was not slaughtered like the first. But this second goat is the one that invites our attention today. The high priest faced that goat and extended both hands and placed them on the head of the goat and then began to confess the sins of the people on the goat. Symbolically, the priests imparted the nation's sins upon the goat. Then the goat was led to the wilderness outside the camp and then was offered to Azazel, not by death, but by being set free. This may be different than how you and I may usually think about a scapegoat. We often combine the concept of the two goats into one idea, but the, the scapegoat which is offered to Azazel historically is not slaughtered but set free. And when we think about atonement, and when we often think about Jesus, we think about Jesus as a lamb. We don't think about Jesus as a goat, but the scapegoat theory of atonement places Jesus as one of the goats 
for my sports fans, that's greatest of all time. <laughs> Jesus as one of the goats, and specifically the goat that had the sins of the people placed upon it. Now, the word Azazel, the one in which the second goat was offered to, it's a peculiar word because it appears nowhere else in Scripture. It has no clear definition. Bible translators have historically translated it as a scapegoat because it's the goat that escapes, carrying the burdens of the people. We now just drop the E and say scapegoat. The scapegoat windows of atonement, like the historical practice of Israel's sacrificial system, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to Jesus, Jesus bears the sins of humanity. Jesus is the one who we confess our sins to, who carries them on the cross. Our passage in Leviticus and this whole elaborate sacrificial system then is basically a shadow of what would ultimately take place on the cross. There, Jesus is the living scapegoat who bears the sins of the world. Remember 1 John? If we confess our sins, there's confession, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify, there's purity, from all unrighteousness. You see, purity and confession are both made annually on Yom Kippur and are the chief aim of the ritual of the two goats, bringing the people into at-one-ment or atonement with God. In the scapegoat windows of the atonement, Jesus bears the sins of the world. And this is not very different from other atonement theories. But where the scapegoat windows differ in explanation of why Jesus does this from the cross and who put him there, why the cross? The scapegoat window says it is because of humans. Because we, quite frankly, love scapegoats. We love scapegoats. And we love sacrifices. And you know what? We're good, Adam. We are good at finding unsuspecting people and making them scapegoats. As former President Dwight Eisenhower rightly said, the search for a scapegoat is the easiest of all hunting expeditions. It's not very difficult to find someone to place the guilt that we have upon others. We're good at offering people up to Azazel. Anthropologist and historian Rene Girard in the 1970s suggested that scapegoating is not just something that we tend to do, but that scapegoating is actually the foundation of cultural life. Every culture on every continent across the span of recorded human history 
From as long as we have human records on papyrus or written on cave walls reveals that humanity has always looked for and found scapegoats. Someone to place blame for society's unrest so that we can keep an uneasy peace. And although the 16th century is the first time that we see the term scapegoat, it is not the first time in history where we have seen scapegoating. Neither is Leviticus. Leviticus is not even the first time we see scapegoating in the Bible. In just the first few chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin against God, desiring and eating of the fruit that they were instructed not to. Adam scapegoats Eve by blaming her. Eve scapegoats the serpent by blaming it. And God has to expel them out of the garden before they do any more harm. Not just that, but Cain and Abel offered offerings to God. But when Cain desired the blessing that Abel received from God, because Abel's sacrifice was received, Cain murdered Abel, blaming Abel for his own inadequate offering. Joseph's brothers, desiring the affection from their father Isaac that Joseph had, blamed him for their discontent throwing Joseph in a pit in hopes that Joseph would no longer be the target of their father's affection. Saul, desiring the honor that young David received from the people, blamed David for his own downward spiral and attempted to take David's life often. Time and time again throughout scripture, we see a pattern of desire for something that another person or group has, followed by a blaming of someone who is powerless to stop the violence aimed against them. This is what Rene Girard, the one attributed to the mirror theory of the scapegoat theory of atonement, this is what he calls mimetic desire. You see, people and societies always want what others have. And when conflict over that thing arises, whether it is land or precious resources or power, and when it brings society to a brink, a scapegoat is identified to keep society from crumbling. It's our desires for what others have that keeps us justifying our acts of scapegoating to keep societal peace among our rivalries. And the truth about the scapegoats that we choose are that they, throughout history, in every culture, are always innocent. The scapegoat is always someone on the margins of society. The scapegoat is always someone with little to no social or political power. And the rivaling sides of society always fail to see that the scapegoat is innocent and never the real reason for the tensions that are happening anyway. 
And after the scapegoat has been sought out and then blamed, both sides of society are satisfied with the false peace that it brings. This is not just a Yom Kippur problem. It is a fundamental human and societal problem. And we scapegoat in our everyday lives. When we read scripture through the window of scapegoating, a clear picture begins to emerge. A window that shows Jesus in a way that we may have missed before. You see, when we look at the scriptures through this window of the scapegoat, we see that Jesus not only is one of the ones who are on the margins of religious and political life, but he is also one who tends to side with the same. Jesus sided with the marginalized. He made friends with and healed the unclean on the outskirts of the community. He did not declare the power of Roman political society, but the power of a new kingdom. His new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, was not established by the sword like Caesar, but by the power of nonviolent love. And as the tensions between an overtaxed Jewish community and an on-edge Roman empire ready to squash any uprising, Jesus becomes the easy target. He is blamed for the uneasy peace. And both sides are pleased to see him as the cause of disruption to their religious and political allegiances. And you know what? No one speaks up on his behalf to declare to the violent whims of society that he is innocent. Scapegoats almost always are innocent and never the cause of the real issue. But we don't like to talk about that, do we? We don't talk about Bruno. Some of you all are familiar with the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno. In the hit Disney movie Encanto, there's this madrigal family led by grandmother and matriarch Abuela. And they are the recipients and guardians of this candle with a magic flame. This magic flame gives each member in the family magical powers, the ability to change the weather for one or to hear from long distances from the other or supernatural strength. An entire society is built around this one family and their casa, their home, where the magical gifts benefit everyone. And this society works, for a while anyway, until there is tension between the family and the society surrounding one of the family members, that's Bruno, and the misunderstanding of his gift of prophecy. You see, Bruno would make prophecies that others didn't quite understand. And if he said that your fish was going to die and your fish died, they said it was because Bruno. Therefore, Bruno becomes the scapegoat, the blame for all that is wrong in the community. 
He is blamed for the metaphorical fracturing of society. And it works. Bruno, under great pressure and blame, leaves and society goes back to normal and is at peace. Just don't talk about Bruno. Just don't mention Bruno and all will be fine. And it is uneasily. And then until it is not. Because you know what? Scapegoating never lasts. There's always another. In this same movie, tensions arise again because they always do. And then there's Mirabelle, another magical outsider. She's an outsider because the family that has the magical gifts, well, guess what? She didn't get one. Just easy enough for her to be on the margins and then to be the one who is blamed for the cracks and the fractures. Scapegoating doesn't, does that. It always does that. It promises to fix something, but it's a promise that it can't keep. And the blame of the outsider, the blame of the misunderstood and the powerless works just enough to keep a system of innocence blamed for the larger issues in society. So what am I saying? Well, let's bring this home. It's a never ending loop of scapegoating with a never ending loop of violence on the innocent. So why did God put Jesus on the cross? People often ask. Well, the answer, according to the mirror theory, which is one of the scapegoat views of the atonement, is that God didn't put Jesus on the cross. We did. God did not incite the mob against the innocent Jesus. Humanity and our need for violence did that. God did not incite the Roman political sphere against Jesus. No, the need for a scapegoat to blame. And our own rivalries did that. And God did not need to inflict violence so that we may be acquainted with it. We're already good at blaming. We're already good at violence. But Jesus went to the cross, bearing our iniquity, our violence, our penchant for blaming, and bears it upon himself. Jesus takes our system of sacrifice that punishes the marginalized and our system of scapegoating, which blames the outsider. And he holds himself to the cross as one who holds up a mirror. And when we see him on the cross, we see us. We see our guilt. We see the results of our violence against the innocent displayed right back to us. It is not God who did this act of violence, but it is us who has done this in the name of a nonviolent God. Jesus' victory on the cross is that he takes our blame and our violence nonviolently. He shows us what we have done and continue to do to others. 
He shows us what happens when we do not own our violent ways and walk in the way of our nonviolent loving God. He shows us that our scapegoating continues to be an excuse to harm and blame those who are farthest from the real issues at hand. He shows us what our thirst for violence and the exercising of power over the most vulnerable really is. It is scapegoating and it is not a sufficient practice for people who are called to live a better way. We are to own our sins, to offer them to God as the goat slaughtered on the altar of burnt offerings. And we are to follow the way of Jesus, being an advocate for the marginalized speaking up for those wrongly accused and, and, and who are often conveniently chosen as scapegoats. We are to stand against the systems that perpetuate scapegoating in our society so that it does not continue in our communities. We are to check ourselves of our own greed and envy that fuels our need to exploit others. This is the way to real peace, to true peace. Not violence for violence, not bloodshed for bloodshed, not sacrifice for sacrifice, but Jesus, which brings an end to violence, an end to bloodshed, and an end to scapegoating. As lecturer Ben Hughes says, we are not saved by sacrificing. We are saved from sacrificing. We are saved from the entire sacrificial system. We are saved from resorting to scapegoating, placing our blame and guilt and need for violence on others, the powerless and the marginalized. Jesus, the scapegoat, puts an end for once and for all for scapegoating and the entire sacrificial system and the false peace that it brings. Thanks be to God. And so the question then is what shall we do? Well, seeing ourselves more clearly Seeing God more clearly in Jesus, the one who was willing to take what we have wrought to show us that which we refuse to see. We turn from our wicked and violent ways and turn to God's ways. This is the good news of the cross. This is our Bruno that we must embrace the good news. And that's something that we all should be talking about.